With Christmas this week, I want to wrap up, of course, our series on Christmas. And we've called this series Comfort and Joy. And we've looked at the Christmas story in Scripture and how it kind of comes to us through different lenses of Scripture. But we looked at it through the perspective of some of the classic hymns. Hymns like have a rich history in the church. Worship has a very rich history in the church. In modern worship, what we want to do, what Aaron's trying to do when we're singing, is we're trying to create an environment for you to connect with God, for you to personally like tell God how much you love him, tell God how much he, uh, he means to you, to lift him up, to glorify God. And so we do that during that during that time, you might see people lifting their hands. You might see people singing out loud. That, that's encouraged here at Connective Church. Our attention is to be focused on God during this period. But hymns also, historically, when we sang songs in church, they, they were used for worship, but they were also used as a way of us learning about what the Bible teaches us. It's, it was a way for us to learn like doctrine basically about who God is and and how he interacts with us and and we learn this in the form of songs because how many of you guys know sometimes it's easier to memorize a song than it is to memorize anything else and so for example amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me you guys know that one right we all know that one uh, I once was lost but now I'm found was blind but now I see how are we saved this song answers that question. Is it through our works? Is it following all the rules? Is it learning a secret handshake? Uh, is it obeying the teachings of our church? Or is it through grace? Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. So in amazing grace, we learn about how we're saved. Hymns have a very rich history because songs are easy to remember. So when you hear a group of people, you might hear this at work. You might have friends that come from different backgrounds and different types of churches in, in our community um, that, that may seem like they're Christian, but, but then they say other things and, and you hear things that, that, are, that, that they say, well, you're really saved through your own works or you're really saved through obeying the teachings of the church or you're really saved through all this stuff. But no, we know that we're saved by grace. And one thing that helped us learn that was amazing grace, right? So we're looking at these hymns, and we looked at God rest you, merry gentlemen, uh, let nothing you dismay. In a year where it seems like there was a lot to dismay, we learned that Christ our Savior has come, and that brings us good tidings of great joy, and he broke the curse of death. Christmas is a season we talked about of excitement, anticipation, and hope. And for us, we have to look at where we place these emotions because where we place these emotions can, can really dictate what we worship. Do you place all of your excitement, anticipation, and hope, do you place that in your relationships? Do you place that in money? Do you place that in, in, in your job or in your kids? Do you place it all? And, and some of these things, they, they can be good things. They can be good things. But our excitement, anticipation, and hope is meant to be targeted at the newborn king, at the person of Jesus. And that's who we worship during this Christmas season. Last week we talked about the song, O Holy Night, particularly the third verse, where Jesus talks about delivering those who are oppressed. We all know someone who has suffered this year. We all know someone who has suffered this year. Almost like any other year in my lifetime of, of almost 40 years of being on this earth, we know people who have gone through uh, sickness, who have gone through loss, who have gone through economic pain. We've known suffering this year than many of us have known 
in prior years of our life. But the Christmas story reminds us that in our suffering, God is not distant from us. God is not far off. He's not away from us. In our suffering, He is near. And O Holy Night talks about that. In Matthew chapter 1, we read this last week, and this is kind of the anchor verse of this series. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. This week I want to wrap up this series with one more Christmas hymn. Hark the herald angels sing. This is probably my least favorite title of all of it. Because do you use the word hark anymore? I don't use the word hark. What does that even mean? Hark the herald angels sing. Herald sounds like a newspaper. I actually Googled last night because I thought the herald was one of like the comic strip newspapers like that Superman or Spider-Man worked for. I was way wrong. My comic book knowledge is really bad. Tony, you could probably tell me immediately what newspaper Superman worked for. But I don't know. I don't know who this is, right? So herald seems like a newspaper, right? That's just what I think when I hear that. But really what these terms mean... Herald is, a, is a, like an official messenger. So when the angels, the herald angels, the official me- messenger, and hark, what that means is listen up, pay attention, you might want to hear this. So when we sing this, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. You guys, guys don't, don't want to hear me sing this, I'm just going to tell it to you. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. A few months ago, uh, you heard the Christmas, or a few minutes ago, you heard the Christmas story in Luke 2. Luke was a doctor in he was one of the first historians of the church, and so he actually like wrote down this like historical thing of this is what actually happened on Christmas morning. This is what happened. This is where the angels came to the shepherds and the shepherds visited and all, all this stuff. This is where he talks about in this story is a historical account of the birth of Christ. Last week, we looked at the Christmas story through the prophet Isaiah. He prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus's birth, saying that the long-awaited hope of the world was coming. And we've also looked at the Gospel of John, where John talks about God becoming flesh. He says this in John 1, 1 through 5. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And, from, and he, was with, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything was made. In Him was life, and the life that was the light of man. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John is talking about God becoming flesh. But today I want to look at Matthew's telling of the Nativity story. It's slightly different. In Matthew's Gospel, he mentions the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God 37 times. This was the message that Matthew was bringing. Glory to the newborn king. In Isaiah, he was talking about the hope is coming. In Luke, Jesus is born. Historically, let me tell you about it. In John, God has come. In Matthew, Matthew says the king has come. The king has arrived. And you may ask yourself, which of these are correct? And here's the thing, the way, that we, the way that we look at it is like not that Matthew's wrong and Luke is right or John's right and Isaiah's wrong, but it's just a different way of looking at the same thing. All of these people were witnesses 
to Jesus' birth. They were explaining their experience about what happened with the birth of Jesus. It's just different ways of looking at the same thing. It's like if, if you and I, we saw, uh, we saw an event, we saw someone do an amazing thing uh, at, the, at the mall later this week, and we just saw it, we were just like amazed. But we would tell the story in different ways because we're just different people, and the things that matter to you might not be the things that matter to me, or the details that I want to add might not be the details that you want to add. And so it's just from different perspectives that these men wrote these books about the birth of Jesus. As the Bible tells us the same story in different ways, it's not that Luke is right and Isaiah is wrong. On the contrary, each version gives us a clearer perspective of what's really going on. Again, we said Isaiah, hope is coming. Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. In Luke, we talked about Jesus is born. We read this earlier today. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. In John, we read verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the son of God from the father. God has come. And in Matthew, he talks about the king has come. Matthew opens in chapter 1, verse 1. So if you've got your Bibles in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, if you're a King James person, if you're still reading out of the King James Bible, it opens with what we call the begets. Begets. And it says so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. What does that even mean? Why is Matthew including this? Well, if you're talking about a king a kingdom, it matters who your dad is. It matters who your granddad is. It matters who your great-granddad is because you come from a royal line and you're carrying on that, that tradition, that history. You embody that. How many of you guys watch The Crown? You guys, anybody watch The Crown on Netflix? Anybody like that? It's, it's like you carry the weight of your family's history in the person. It's almost like your, your person becomes the title that you carry. And so what Matthew does is he starts out with his, his gospel talking about the history or the genealogy of Jesus. He says in verse 1, The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. David was seen as the king of Israel. He was the one that they all looked to, who they all wanted to be like. The son of Abraham. Then he lists out the generations. And then in verse 17, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And the, from David to the deportation of Babylon were 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ was 14 generations. Matthew isn't some kind of first century ancestry.com ad right now. He's not just trying to figure out that Jesus' grandfather was a plumber from Ireland. That's not what he's trying to do. He's saying that Jesus is from a royal line. He's, he's a king and he is a, he is, he's from a line of kings and the king has come to us. In verses 18 through 25, Matthew briefly tells about how Joseph and Mary were engaged, but they weren't married. However, Mary was still a virgin when she conceived of Jesus. And then in verse 26, after Jesus' birth, he was visited by wise men from the east. And these wise men only appear in Matthew's version of the Christmas story. In Matthew 2, verse 1 through 12, it says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, 
In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Born king of the Jews means that Jesus is king by birthright. He's king by birthright. When Herod, who was actually the king, who was the, the king of the time, who was over this, this land and this group of people, when he heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born, and, he told, and they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, because again, Isaiah prophesied that, for it was written by the prophet. And then he says this, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among rulers of Judah, for you shall come, uh, from, from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them the time that the star had appeared. And when he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when when it rose and went before them until it came to rest over a place where the child was. When they, they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with joy, and going into the house, they saw a child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and had been warned in a dream not to return to Herod. They departed to their own country another way. Gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh that these wise men bought were used to honor the new king here. Typically, these gifts were uh, held for royalty. One thing that's just kind of odd to mention, that's good to mention here, uh, does it ever say that there were three wise men? No, but it does say they bought three gifts. So that's where we get the idea that there were three wise men because they bought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But these gifts were associated with royalty. You wouldn't bring this to a common child. And so as Matthew is telling this story, and he starts off with these this bloodline of Jesus. And then he talks about these wise men from the East, these scholars from the East, these leaders from the East coming and bringing Jesus gifts. They're bringing him gifts of royalty. This child who was born in the village of Bethlehem into obscurity, laid in a manger, is recognized by these wise men as the king of Israel. Matthew continues the story in verse 26. Herod, or verse 16, Herod sought to destroy Jesus and send soldiers to kill every male child in Bethlehem. But Joseph fled with Mary and Jesus to Egypt. So not only was Jesus born in a stable, this king, this king that's over everything, this king that's meant to save his people, this king who will be king, who God will glorify and he'll sit at the right hand of God and and every knee will bow at his name. This king was born in a stable, but his family also became refugees. Later in Matthew 3, In chapter 3, Matthew introduces John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, whose message was this, repent. 
That means everything that you're doing wrong, everything that you're doing selfish, everything that you're, every mistake that you're made, turn away from that. Turn back from that. Turn to God. Repent away from it. For the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God arrives on earth with the birth of Jesus Christ. What makes one kingdom unique from another? Kingdoms have their own laws. They have their own customs. They have their own language. They have their own culture, their way of living. You guys, most of us in here identify as Americans. I mean, you guys have been overseas. You've been to another country. It's a little different over there. It's a little different. It's almost like sometimes you get, literally get off the plane and the air feels different. It just feels different. It's just a different place. And so what happens is, is that when Jesus comes, the kingdom of heaven comes to earth, things should change for us. We shouldn't be living the same way. We shouldn't be acting the same way. We shouldn't be doing the same things. And life should not continue how it's always been before. This was the message of John the Baptist. Repent. Turn your heart back to God. Turn your attention back to God for the kingdom of heaven. His kingdom is at hand now. There's a new culture, a new way of living, a new customs. It's all here. The announcement of the new kingdom is this. The culture that was has been completed. It's done. The system that oppressed people, where people fight to control each other, where sin and death ruled, all of that has passed. All of that is making way for a new kingdom because it, there has been the arrival of a new king. There cannot be a new kingdom without a new king. And there can't be a new king without a new kingdom. The kingdom and the king come together. This is the reason why it shows it this way. When Jesus arrives, the kingdom of heaven is now here. Every crown needs a head for it to sit on. Every domain, every land needs a throne for a person to sit there. There cannot be a kingdom without a king. And so when Jesus arrives, there's a new kingdom, a new culture, a new way of living that's bursting through uh, the, our current way. And so Jesus comes and he's come to deliver this message. This was Matthew's Christmas story. We see the arrival of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ. If the version of Christianity that you were taught or that you've adopted allows you to align with Jesus on some topics, but don't, doesn't allow for him to sit on the throne of your life, then I would argue that the version of Christianity that you're following doesn't follow Matthew's version. It's different. Matthew says that Jesus is king. In a kingdom, you can't say king this is what I like about you. This is what I don't. This is what I will follow. This is what I won't. You can't do that. It's all in. It's all in or you're not in at all. That's how you live in a kingdom. In a democracy, it's a little different. We like saying our opinions. I think I should vote for this. The red people, I think I should vote for the blue people. I think I should vote for uh, whatever the uh, proposition or amendment or whatever. We like giving our opinions out. But in a kingdom... There's only one opinion that matters, and that's the opinion of the king. 
And so when Jesus comes, we can't just say, pick and choose what he wants. We can't just say, um, you know, I, I, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, on the areas that are, you align with me and the parts of me that we agree with, but I'm going to reject the stuff that I don't agree with you. No, Jesus is king, and so I have to follow him fully. At some point, I've got to identify who or what is on the throne of my life. I have to identify who or what is on the throne of my life. And if it, if it is not Jesus, then I have to decide if I'm going to accept him as king and put him on the throne of my life, or if I'm going to reject him. If I accept him, then my heart, my thoughts, my life are now a part of the kingdom because he is on the throne. This is Matthew's announcement of a newborn king. Matthew's story is about the kingdom of heaven that has arrived. This king who's arrived and he brings with him a new way of living. And he ends this story in chapter 28. In chapter 28, the king says this, 28, 19, and 20, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is what Jesus tells his disciples that when, he, when he's about to, to go up into heaven, when he's about to ascend. He tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Is it random that Matthew would include this in his gospel about the king? No. He's saying all authority, all, everything, G, everything is underneath the feet of Jesus. He, he's, it's been given to them. And then Jesus says this, go therefore and make disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple is a disciplined follower. A disciplined follower. Not someone who just agrees with something or who, who agrees with this and rejects that. No, this is someone who just disciplines their life to follow someone. Who? The king. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why baptism? Because baptism signifies that there was an old way of life. We bury that, and then there's a new life that's coming out of it. There's a new uh, way of living, a new uh, uh, driving force in your life that's directing you in life. And so baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. All my directives to you as the king. And then he says this, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our king promises to never leave us, never abandon us, always. The arrival of his kingdom is Matthew's Christmas story. And the invitation of Jesus for you and I is that we work towards that kingdom. We work towards it. We, we, we submit ourselves to it. We, we discipline ourselves to follow the directions of Jesus and what the Bible teaches us and how to love our neighbor and how to, how to pray and how to, how to not be selfish and how to be a better husband, be a better wife, be a better parent. How the Bible teaches us to do this. Not just my opinion, but what the Bible says. I want to learn and grow. I want to be a disciplined follower of the king because the king has arrived and when the king has arrived, everything changes. Everything changes. And so the invitation to you and I today is to not continue to live 
the same way that we've always lived. Doing the same things over and over again, the same pitfalls, the same, the same old, same old, same old, same old, same old mistakes, and we just keep doing the same thing over and over again. No, the King has arrived. Jesus has died. He has defeated death in His resurrection, and because of that, you and I now can be alive in Him because He is the King. And this is Matthew's story for us. Some of us, we... Again, in our democracy, this is really hard for us to, to acknowledge and, and to understand, but how many of you guys have ever voted for someone, voted for a president or voted for a senator or whatever, who told you they were going to do one thing, but then they did something completely different? Has that ever happened to you? Okay, just me. It just happens. Because the driving force is different. And, we, and, and it's hard to understand that, we're, it's hard for us to grapple with, like, what does it actually mean to follow a leader like this? But you have to know that Jesus is good. Jesus is faithful. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That his promises are yes and amen. That he is faithful to his word. And whatever his word is, he will, he will see that it is accomplished. And so you and I can put our trust, our hope, and our, and our lives in his hands. And, uh, and trust him that he will lead us to where we need to go. So whatever doubt, whatever struggle you have with taking your life and putting it in his hands, you can trust him. 